Hey, thanks so much. Another week, Albert Tate Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the waiting room. I hope you've enjoyed uh, my guests in the waiting room. It's pretty cool to hear these amazing leaders talk about the times and moments that they've experienced, they themselves, in hard places of waiting. Uh, today, I've got invited into the waiting room, uh, David Kinneman. He runs a great organization, research organization named uh, Barna, the Barna Group organization. Uh, they produced tons of great content, got an amazing book that just released, and he's going to talk about his book. And then we're going to talk about time in the waiting room and how that impacted him. And let me tell you something. David experienced some moments in the waiting room and has gotten some great nuggets for us to learn from about what he learned when he was in the waiting room. So, yo, get comfortable. Here's my conversation in the waiting room with Barna Group's own David Kinnaman. I am so excited today uh, to have David Kinnaman. David, thank you so much for joining the Albert Tate Podcast, bro. My pleasure. Thank you, Albert. David runs the Barna Group. Tell us a little bit about the Barna Group and what you guys do over there, bro. So Barna's been in uh, business since 1984, uh, started by a good friend of mine, a Boston mentor, uh, George Barna, uh, in 1984. And uh, we do social research to try to understand what's happening spiritually uh, and across a range of different sort of demographics and psychographics in our, in our culture. Um, and so we, we've come alongside some of the biggest organizations and ministries and leaders trying to help them understand you know, what's, what's happening. And, uh, we use social research to do that. And so we've written books and articles and, you know, um, a bunch of PowerPoint slides and data that try to help people and leaders really get a, get a sense of what's going on in, in the world, uh, through the lens of research. Wow. That's exciting. Now, David, I mean, that sounds like a, I mean, it, it, it has the potential to sound like a boring job because you're just doing research and reading <laughs> all the time. What inspires you and why are you passionate about that? Well, there can be some boring elements of it, but I mean, I think the devil's in the details and the, the kind of work that we do um, really matters. I mean, I, I can tell you so many different stories of coming alongside organizations and leaders at critical times in their either organizational life or their, their leadership you know, journey and being able to use research to help them discern what, what they should do, their right next step. And, mm. you know, so often we're, we're stuck without a clear view of what's really happening. You know, we, we sometimes use these anecdotes around us or our gut and those are, those are okay, but they're not always as good as doing good, solid research. Um, and, you know, so I mean, like the things that fire me up are trying to help reconnect, um, you know, a generation to the church, um, yeah. you know, millennials, Gen Z, they're, they're struggling in so many ways with the form and the function of church. And so we've done tons of research on that. I've done at least three books on that, uh, Unchristian, You Lost Me, and a new book called Faith for Exiles, and, you know, really trying to, trying to help reconnect the young people, young people to the church. Um, another thing is really trying to help, you know, leaders of churches to have a new scorecard for success. I mean, we, we count, you know, people in the church, the number of dollars that are, that are given, you know, nickels and noses, as people say, uh, but we don't always do a good job of understanding how we're helping them to flourish as mm. human beings. And, and so, you know, can, can we help, you know, help leaders sort of understand the deeper story that is happening in the midst of their leadership? 
Those are yeah. the kinds of things that, that fire me up. Oh, man. And I'm just going to tell you, the product of some of that boring research has been a huge blessing to our church and to me personally. Good Faith was something that once I read it, man, I stopped the whole staff. We all sat down and read it and had several conversations just talking through the implications. So it's shaped many of our next steps. So we really appreciate the work that you guys do. Uh, it's been a blessing to our church. Um, tell me about the latest product uh, that you guys got, the latest book, uh, Faith for Exile. Yeah, thanks. We uh, well, th- thanks for saying all that. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to come alongside leaders like you and your staff, and you know, when we get a chance to pr- present, um, lead, you know, the data to leaders or help to you know open up their eyes to a changing world, it's uh, it's what drives us. So there's all, all the, the boring work of working through the surveys and all the rest, which you know, for those of us that are nerds and geeks and researchers, um, it's not boring actually. Like the time flies. Um, yeah. So the new project is a, a book called Faith for Exiles. And I'll just sort of mention sort of two projects at once because they, they go hand in glove. And one, one is Faith for Exiles, which is a, a, an end to a trilogy of books on the next generation that I've written. Um, and so it went from You Lost Me, uh, focusing on non-Christians. You Lost, I'm sorry, uh, Unchristian, focusing on non-Christians. You Lost Me, focusing on lapsed Christians. And then Faith for Exiles, which is focusing on the most resilient young Christians. Wow. And um so we really we focused in on the 10% who are the most resilient. And, and then the second project that we worked on that's sort of related is the thing called the Connected Generation, which we did with World Vision. And it's a global study, 25 countries, nine languages, more than 15,000 interviews, where we interviewed um, you know, 18 to 35-year-olds. And a lot of the things I've been studying for the last decade in Unchristian You Lost Me and Faith for Exiles is now in this book uh, called The Connected Generation. So we've been really trying to understand the heartbeat of this emerging generation, what they're thinking about faith, and and how we as church leaders can really make a difference in their lives. What's been the biggest, like, aha um, discovery in the research with understanding this next generation? Everyone has opinions about millennials and uh, the Gen Zs and all of this stuff. What's been one of the, a couple of just the big whoa? We didn't we didn't expect that out of out of the research. It was really surprising is just the level of um, of anxiety and mental health issues that this generation is dealing with globally. Hmm. Um, so that was certainly one of the big findings. Um, and you know the conclusion is that this generation needs the church to be emotionally connected. And what we mean by that is, you know, we've like um, huge levels of anxiety, depression, mental health. Um, one in five adults around the country, young adults around the country and around the world are fear, fearful of violence, um, which is just a huge number when you think about, you know, the millions of young people in these 25 countries that that represented. And, and so to be a connected church means we have to, emotionally connected, we, we have to Think about the long-term impact of what we communicate, how we communicate, what we're doing, how we're shaping our events, how we think about interacting with people. And here's an example. Um, We see in a lot of the work the last 10 years that a lot of those who walk away from the church or walk away from their faith feel as though they were emotionally manipulated into making a decision for Christ. Now, that's not true of everyone, and it's okay to use emotions as part of our communication toolkit, but I would say that we have to be really cautious not to have people look back on that time when they raised their hand, when they made a commitment to Christ in those early days that they're like, wow, what kind of, what was that? Was that, you know, was that a cult? Was that a, 
was, were I, was I just being religiously, religiously and emotionally manipulated? And hmm. instead, that this is why, you know, like, I believe God transforms like the whole person, our, our heart, mind, body, and soul. Um, and that we, that our ministries have to be effective on that as well. So like, in addition to, you know, a heart commitment, we also have to train the mind and, and think about the ways in which this is going to, you know, be, be emotionally connected into their, their, their world, into their life. Um, you know, as you're preaching and communicating, you know, thinking clearly about and, and asking the Holy Spirit to come alongside you to say things that might, um, allow for those in, in your audience who are going through, uh, a different experience, you know, that, that, you know, this summer I was at a church where the, the pastor was preaching about, um, you know, taste and see that the, the, the Lord is good, uh, in the Psalms. And, and, you know, she acknowledged the pastor did, uh, those times when, um, for, you know, for some people, you know, you've gone through cancer, you've gone through circumstances. And for me and for my kids who we've gone through, you know, a tough time with cancer with my wife, um, who's doing really well now, but like, you know, it's, it's still the pain is the pain and the wounds are pretty deep. Like mm. the fact that she acknowledged some of those things in her, you know, in her, in her, in her teaching, um, gave us space to really wrestle with, with what she was saying about taste and see that the, that the Lord is good. So emotionally connected, connected church has a whole range of different implications, but that was one of the big things, this, this, the levels of anxiety, the pressures that the most connected generation of all time, um, is feeling and mm. how the church can respond to help develop, you know, people of peace is, uh, is, is really, really profound. I think. Wow. That's pretty, um, <laughs> that's pretty amazing. And, and when you say that, I immediately identify it when I think about, um, the mental, uh, illness issues, the depression, um, the suicide rate, um, and all of those things that are happening. And it seems as if we're not careful, the church would, kind of ignore those things and not be intentional about reaching out and identifying and creating space for those things to be dealt with and brought before the cross. And what is Jesus, how does Jesus show up in the, in the, in that space? So that that's very profound and very helpful as a leader teacher and as a church. Yeah. Thanks. And I think one of the, the implications of that is that, you know, simply, um, simply trying to preach our way through those issues isn't really a sufficient, it's, it's not, it's, it's more important than ever to be a good preacher, but it's insufficient to bring around the kind of, emotional connection and issues that people are wrestling with. And, you know, kind of a related finding is just the level of, of cynicism that this generation often has towards authority figures. Hmm. And that could be people, government leaders, um, you know, uh, uh, even tech, te even tech, even the industries that are the most well-regarded like technology and, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, healthcare or healthcare isn't particularly well regarded, but like even, even places where we know we're going to have to engage in the political sphere or with various industries, people in general, and, and in particular, when it comes to the church, we find that there's a, a growing level of cynicism that a church could be emotionally connected to the real issues of the day that like all you do as a pastor is, um, you know, you're, you're basically paid, you're paid to be the God guy in the room. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, I think we as leaders have to admit and understand that we are conflicted as professional Christians. And what that means is, you know, of course, we really believe this stuff, um, although we know that from the data, about one in four pastors say they go through a period during ministry when they significantly doubt whether God really exists. Hmm. And and that's that's like, I, I'm surprised it's not 100%, right? Because it's, it's, right. uh, it's tough to be in ministry and it's tough to be, to be hu human and not have some just honest doubts and questions. Um, 
and the more that we make it okay and understand that, that it, the, the more it's, it's norm, you know, we normalize it for, for the rest of us who really are dealing with those questions. But if, if we're just paying people to be professional Christians and we're not, we're not clear about how, um, how this generation, if all they hear at your church are people who are paid to be Christian speak and, and present, uh, we're finding this sort of this reaction that they're like, well, that's just your job, man. That's you're just, you're just paid to be my friend. You're paid to be the God guy in the room. So, uh, you know, we can outsmart that, um, not just for strategy sake, but we, we have this natural resource of, you know, dozens, hundreds of people in our, people in our church who are lay Christians who aren't paid, who aren't conflicted. We should do a good job of bringing them up front, praying with them, hearing from them, interviewing from them. They may not be teachers, uh, but, but doing more and more, um, of, of sort of platforming them because I think it helps to diminish the sense of millennials and Gen Z like, Oh yeah, yeah. That'd be youth pastor. I like that guy just part of the church marketing department. Um, <laughs> you know? And so we, we, yeah. we got to do a good job of sort of recover, recovering this priesthood of all believers uh, theology that we all believe. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of our folks that are listening this season, we've been in conversations deeply about what I call the waiting room. And it kind of goes along with what you're talking about creating space to have real authentic conversations about hard times that people can identify with. Um, waiting room is this place that we find ourselves in when we're following Jesus and um, we don't get to dictate the times and the seasons and when suffering comes or hardship comes, we find ourselves stuck in a place where we're waiting on God. And to be honest, a lot of times that's when people walk away from God. Um, when something hard comes along and they don't trust God to bring them through it, they're actually frustrated or they blame God for that season. So with the Barna Group, before you buy it, you're vice president, kind of, you know, First of all, what gives you the ambition to take it over and the confidence? Because there are people that are listening right now that want to do something big, but questioning whether they even have the goods. Is there a thing like maybe you shouldn't have bought Barna? Maybe you should have. Maybe, or it was, are you just made to be a junior vice president? How did you know that you had what it took to go after it and to have that ambition? And some people would even look at that as arrogance or or pridefulness, or who do you think you are? How do you fight those things in, from in culture? Yeah, I um, those are good questions, Albert. I um, it was weird because um, when I first started thinking about you know buying a company, I was actually really more thinking about trying to understand the next ten years of my work with George. I've been working with him for fourteen years, fourteen freaking years, and and I learned so much. I really, in some ways, didn't realize how much I was ready to move on. But I remember saying like in my mind, as I started to think about the negotiation with him and he, he was really clear that he's like, you know, you're going to, you're going to be the next leader of this company. And, you know, um, we're, we're, you know, my, my wife and I, Nancy Barn and I are planning on that being the case. And so, uh, but he didn't really have like a succession plan. So I kind of, I started thinking, okay, well, what would that look like? I mean, I, I think I want to run this thing, but I had, you know, certainly plenty of doubts and plenty of, questions in my mind. And so I started, you know, sort of scenario planning around, well, okay, well, maybe if I could just earn, you know, a couple percentage points a year of equity in the business over a period of 20 years, you know, I might earn like 30%, you know, whatever, 30% of the business. But I was still like in my mind thinking about how I could serve and just work alongside him. Um, I really loved working for him. He's a great, a great guy and a, a courageous leader. And, um, and yet it was almost 
So I had to buy a majority over the period of time, like the Lord, what, one of the principles I learned was that promotion comes from the Lord. Mm. So the more you are trying to promote yourself, um, the more that, uh, that you know, like, like there has to be periods of time where you, you know, in Abraham's case, like, you know, you're really willing to sort of sacrifice your, your idol, your dream, your son. And, um, and actually just as a, as a side note, I mean, I've had to go through that even in the last 10 years. I mean, this week, last uh, October 1st is my, my 10 year anniversary of owning a company. And so even in those 10 years, I've had to give the, give the company to the Lord at regular times, um, hmm. you know, talking to even being, being in submission to my family and advisors, like this is, if I'm trying to pursue this for my own sake, then, then it's time to, to walk away. Um, and I've structured a lot of things around myself that keep me in, in, you know, in sort of a submitted relationship about, you know, the timing of my calling here. But, um, but yeah, those were tough decisions. And I mean, like I finally started to realize that I, in order to move the company forward, I had to own the company. I had to own a majority of it. I had to, and, and, you know, then I still kept George and Nancy as a minority owner um, because I want to make sure that I honor them, that if we could experience any kind of economic growth or long-term viability that I wanted to have them, you know, have a stake in that as well. And yeah. so it was really interesting. Those, those, those periods of, um, you know, realizing that the Lord was, was, was asking me to step up and lead. Um, and you know, what that sort of that journey personally, of, you know, that I wasn't just supposed to be a second, you know, a, a second in command, but, um, I was supposed to be a second generation leader, of, mm. a leader who came after and, and stood on the, on the shoulders of George. Yeah. What I love about that man is one of the big lessons that promotion comes from the Lord and what you learn in the waiting room, you oftentimes have to then execute again on the playing field. So it's not like you had to trust God to promote you in that one season, but I love that you said even since running the company, you've had to go back and reuse those muscles. So it engage that muscle memory of surrender and yielding as you lead the company uh, as well. Mm, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And it was interesting too, we, um, the first year, first year in, we had a, a big embezzlement <laughs> and uh, don't talk about this too much publicly, but you know, it's like just the nature of business. Sometimes things happen and it's not like, not like you throw up your hands like, well, you know, it, it just happened, but it was painful, painful, painful lesson. Wow. Um, and, um, and it was enough money that it was really, you know, an existential threat to the business. Mm. And, um, and so it was about 12 months on from buying the business, you know, about nine years ago. And, um, and I remember in a weird way, it felt like my business for the first time, um, that, that I, you know, I was like, I was sort of determined in my heart to save the business and to make, make it through the tough time and the clarity of communication and the crisis management and, you know, uh, two words that I never wished I knew, uh, went together, forensic accounting, um, you know, where you, you, you literally, you literally, you hire someone to figure out where did all the money go and how much was it and, you know, what, what kind of actions do you need to take? Uh, to recover it or to make good. And the Lord uh, did restore a lot of that. And, and, you know, again, it was like this really important set of lessons early on. Um, even, even a little bit of an, an, another waiting room for me of, you know, the, the several months as we tried to, you know, rally, you know, talk to vendors and, you know, accounts receivable and, 
um, and you know, talk to talk to, to people we were paying, you know, accounts payable, and like going through all of our, you know, just how do we get through this? And um, we did, you know, like we we made it. It was actually it was like a huge deal that we made it through. Mm. And um, so again, I think I think I learned a lot of a lot of important lessons about you know running running the company around trust, trust but verify kind of stuff, and yeah. you know, just a yeah. whole whole range of things that are that were that were uh, important at that time as well. Mm. So you would say that 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 waiting room taught you a lot of business lessons that you would glean from for the years uh, coming after that, pretty significantly. Uh, absolutely, and you know, again, part of it was this interesting loneliness of leadership, and I don't I don't know that that you know sometimes you might describe it as you know sort of like nobody else but me. And I had lots of people around me who helped who helped us get through it. Yeah, uh, and people who lend us money and people that you know deferred payments and you know mm. just we, we we made it through. But it was sort of like how do you hold a vision in your heart and a and a and a, and a vision to get through that? And you know because we're a small company, people think Vaughn is massive, and you know we're we're a well-established brand, and you know we we do just fine. But it was like you know we've we've gone through highs and lows in the natural business cycles of what we've done. And so having, having to learn, you know, some of those lessons and how to communicate through a crisis and how to deal with, you know, different, you know, different, different layers of the business. Yeah. Um, and just to be patient in that. And again, to kind of hold the long-term vision um, is, is man, there were so, so such valuable lessons that, you know, have been, have been things have come back to time again. And I hope that's encouraging to the people that are listening that find themselves with ambition and wanting to go to the next level or navigating business or navigating leadership, but you find yourself in these difficult waiting rooms that they are filled with rich lessons. The waiting room is often a classroom where there are rich lessons that are being taught um, and how to identify them. And you look back five years, six years, 10 years later and say, whoa, most of what I've learned came from the waiting room. Um, as you mentioned briefly, um, and I'm just so thankful for the testimony of your wife and that she's doing well, as you guys have walked through that for a couple of years, man, um, what are some of the biggest takeaways as you guys sit and hold one another and reflect and are so thankful for where you are now? What are, what are a couple of things you already said that God doesn't waste suffering? Uh, which is powerful. T.D. Jakes says a, has a famous quote, God doesn't waste pain. And I, and I just absolutely think that's so significant. Um, but any other takeaways or lessons from that season? Um, I, I definitely don't want you to relive that or, or, or re talk through all of that because I can only imagine how traumatic that was. But any any lessons coming out of that waiting room? Well, you know, Albert, we were... Um we were just finishing up our kitchen remodel when all that came down. It was about a six month kitchen remodel. Uh, we did a beautiful kitchen remodel that we've been waiting for for 20 something years. So, you know, Jill says that it was because of the kitchen remodel that all this brain cancer stuff happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I'm just kidding, but it, but it, it, it was, it was, uh, it was, 
uh, it was a waiting room of its own kind doing the, <laughs> doing the dishes in the garage. Oh, and, bro. Yeah. Well, let me tell you something. I was talking to you during that time and I started a kitchen remodel <laughs> after that. And we're right in like month five of a kitchen remodel. So I, I feel the pain, brother. I feel like I'm in a waiting room. Can I, <laughs> can I come to your house and cook on your kitchen, please? While we wait. <laughs> Absolutely. Anytime, anytime. Oh man. That's why I mentioned it. Uh, that's why I mentioned it. But yeah, so, um, I don't know. It's it it is, it is, uh, such a painful period of time, and 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 uh, and I say that because I I think it's so easy for us as leaders, who um, you know process life, who, who try to put meaning to circumstances. You know, I really, I did a lot of journaling. I um, I it was another period of time, as I mentioned, where I thought a lot about what the Lord might be calling to calling me to do in terms of, of vocation, um, mm. you know, that, that like caring for Jill, um, you know, could be part of my vocation, but also part of, you know, um, that, 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 you know, I was open to any kind of, you know, pr- promotion or change in status, um, at that time. Um, and, you know, also, also feeling like the Lord wasn't, you know, asking me to become her full-time caregiver. Um, you know, we, we, we ended up hiring some full-time care and other things during those. She's, she's better now and, and, and doing, like I said, quite well. Although there's still sort of this long shadow of, you know, the impact of that is memory yeah. and yeah, just, just, just things, you know, and, and so there's been some real gifts that it was almost like there's, there's things gained and things lost. We've lost a lot. We've lost a lot. A lot of innocence. You know, she's four, forty-three years old when when it came. So, mm. you know, it's sort of like people aren't supposed to get sick that early, but but they do. And mm. um, and you know, we've we've lost a lot. We've also gained a lot. And among that I've gained is just I've got a twenty-year-old, eighteen-year-old, and fifteen-year-old son, two girls and a boy. And um, I I think there's there's no way that I would be as close to them today, and in the way that I'm close to them. Um, had we not gone through this, I mean, they, they give me advice and, and, and emotional intimacy and, and, you know, there are two of them off at college. Um, but we talk with regularity and, you know, the beauty of cell phones is that we're able to stay connected. You know, I probably get three, four calls a day from my oldest and, and, um, and we don't talk long each time, but, you know, just like, wow. uh, or, or every time, but, but, but we, you know, we're just like, we're pals and she's, uh, yeah. She's a she's a champion for me and and my emotional health and my spiritual health and you know so that's one thing that I've gained I've, I've gone to see a spiritual director the last year and a half and that's been another thing I've gained that you know like while I'm always interested in growing and you know growing as a leader I think a lot of the first 20 years of my leadership were around you know just sort of like the sense of being up and to the right like you know you're just you're just you're just kind of like growing like a weed, but yeah. then a lot of this was really thinking back, uh, you know, I think as Richard Rorse is sort of the other half, half of life, like, you know, it's, mm. you, you're, you're trying to not just backfill, but you just realize like, this isn't the way life is, life is not going to just be, you know, writing books, doing speaking, being successful, you know, quote, perceived to be successful, whatever. It's like, there's like a whole other side of life. So it's made me incredibly aware of, of you know what others are are going through, I still have so much room to grow in that. But you know, just realizing how much people are suffering around me, um, you know, you just think today, 
at the, ho- at the hospital, you know, the closest hospital to you, there are people who are just in immense physical pain and emotional mm. anguish and, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the, the world is sort of filled, filled with suffering, but we, we when we're not in that mode, we just don't, we don't tend to tap into it. We don't, we don't care. So it's just given me a new dimension of understanding, even the research we're doing, you know, just yeah. understanding what, what people suffer and, yeah. um, how the moments that lead to them taking one of our surveys as uh, you know, sort of a story of what they, what they've experienced and what they've suffered. Yeah. Wow. I'm so thankful for you and um, allowing us to learn from those lessons. Um, and the thing about your kids, man, and that relationship and that intimacy and that connection, that is, man, that's so beautiful. And it's something that I think, we all kind of long for and it's interesting the the irony in that is that we think the more good we can give our kids the more relationship and the better quality relationship toys uh cars phones trips um but it was cancer that brought a level of intimacy um that I'm sure you would say is irreplaceable and invaluable now so the way that God works um, it's frustrating at times because you're like, man, I, I wish I could have gotten that kind of intimacy from a new car. That would have been great. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's like when you look back a over... To, a trip to Hawaii. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that could have pulled it off, God. Exactly. That would have been cool. Um, but to, <laughs> to trust him and to rest in him and to see him make all things work together for good, uh, recognizing that there's pain in that as well, is the beautiful narrative that really God promised. I, I say all the time, when it comes to God, we're sending on promises oftentimes that he never really made. Uh, there there will be suffering, there will be trials, uh, but the promise is he'll be with you every step of the way through those trials and those dark times. So, man, David, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for how this story will then shape the work that you provide for us through the Barna Group. You're a blessing to the body of Christ, and man, you're a blessing to me. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Albert, always a pleasure, man. I love you, brother. Love you too, bro. Thanks so much. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Albert Tate Podcast. To stay connected, make sure to subscribe to the Albert Tate channel, rate and review this episode, and make sure to share on your social media platforms. You can follow along with Albert on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Once again, thank you for tuning in to this week's episode, and we'll see you next time.